0: Hey everyone, I'm Emmanuel. I'm Kali. And we're two of the hosts of The Cooler. Today we are joined by a brilliant actor who's been in, pardon my French, a shit ton of movies, television shows, and theater productions. Jurassic Park, ever heard of it? Law & Order SVU, hello? Mulan, Oz, Mr. Robot, and Butterfly, the list goes on basically put some respect on his name. It's BD Wong! Hey! Hey! Welcome
1: to the Kula!
2: Thanks!
0: I should have said welcome home, because you are from San Francisco. I am, yeah. How does it feel to be back?
2: It feels great. I don't get as much of an opportunity to come back as I would like, and so this kind of confluence of personal and professional coming together is really very nice for me. And it's great for my mom, who lives here and, and who, enjoys all the kind of mom things that come with seeing her kid in a play and stuff oh, like yes that. <laughs> does she get
1: to like look after you when you come home
2: a little bit like i have to separate a little bit because i have to concentrate on the work itself but the last time i did a play here she got to know the house staff and so she got oh. let in all the time you know like <laughs> a little special chair in the back for her it's really really nice it, it's it feels very heartwarming
0: and she can ask you, have you eaten in person yes, instead she can. of a mom? that's right.
2: And she does, yeah.
0: Yes. Mom cliches not... are, are true. Yeah, like they're, they're all they're true. They're real, yeah. So the reason why you are back in town is for this play yes. called The Great Leap. Yes. Tell us about what it's about and what drew you to this role.
2: The play takes place in San Francisco, in Chinatown. So he's a kid from San Francisco, Chinatown, who is a kind of a basketball kind of phenom and goes to China to play with an American team in a Chinese exhibition game. And it's also about the relationship between two coaches, a Chinese coach and an American coach. I play the Chinese coach. Things unfold and world history plays a part in it without any spoilers. <laughs> and it, it's a really wonderful play. I, I know this better than most actors in my position would be because I did do this part in this play before. And I loved it so much that when I found out that ACT was doing it in San Francisco, I really, really wanted to do it again.
0: It sounds like a slam dunk. <laughs> Sorry, I had I oh. saw the corny opportunity and I was like, yeah, I'm going to use my no. one sports reference knowledge. You um, saw and it
1: and you it. went for it. Yeah. And I respect
0: It that. was like a layup, if you will. <laughs> I'm going to stop Is
1: now. that the term? I am telling no <laughs> I don't know. We're not sporting folks, as you I'm may be able to deduce. I'm not much of a sporting deduce.
2: folk either.
0: But now we are because of this play. yes.
1: And if folks don't know you from acting on the stage, it's often from one of two things. Oh, it is... Oh,
2: boy. What? Which one?
1: <laughs> in the the very kind of popular consciousness, it'll be either Law and Order
2: uh-huh.
1: or Jurassic Park.
2: I guess that's true. I
1: mean, that's the kind of informal poll that we conducted uh-huh, amongst right. folks I of see. a certain age. Yes. And so these are like huge, iconic juggernauts, like franchises. franchises and you, you're yeah. this part of them. You, you've done the Jurassic Park sequels now that are coming out. Yes. Introducing like this new generation to the story. It, does it still consistently surprise you how attached people get to one of these two big things that you are in?
2: Oh, yeah. Not to put those things down at all, because I love those things and they've been very good to me and I, I'm grateful for them. But it is interesting because you strive to do excellent work or to Mm. be taken seriously as an artist and all of that stuff. And I do plays, and this play is part of that vibe of that for me. But these other things that you do resonate in a very different way. They reach more people, and they strike a chord that's very different from these other things. The theater is not a medium of great exposure. So as much as I love the theater, it's never going to deliver in the same way as a television show. And so it's kind of astonishing that there are these numbers of people that you encounter on the street or whatever that connect to this or that say really very meaningful things about it. that That's the most gratifying kind of fan interaction that you can have, which is I decided to be a forensic psychiatrist because I saw you in the show when I was very oh, wow. young and I didn't know there was such a career opportunity. This is super common. I know mean, it's very strange. My picture, more well, the picture of the character that I play on SVU, is in a psychiatric textbook Wow. Um, what <laughs> a forensic t- psychiatric textbook and i keep getting tweets or social media interaction with with people about how, oh, look, I I saw you today in my book or or whatever. And a lot of younger people that didn't know that there were career opportunities in forensics became uh, acquainted with it and went into it because, not because of me, but because of the presence of that character in the show. And so that's really nice.
1: That's so interesting that you get people citing you as like career inspiration. I think they've measured it with Gillian Anderson being in The X-Files, that it just introduced all of these women into like law
2: enforcement careers. (laughs) Yeah, and that's this exposure that I'm talking about. And that's why it's very important for television writers and television producers to be responsible about their content Mm. because it's reaching young people at a very impressionable time. It's super influential. And you'd think of it only as a medium of kind of entertainment or to be taken lightly. When you realize that it actually influences people, it's an eye-opening kind of thing, which I love. I like understanding that something that we're doing isn't just reduced to its popularity but there's a little bit more to it
0: on the topic of representation and also law and order svu uh-huh. right before you left the show after a decade playing this character
2: right before i left the show yes. they
0: decided yes you know what we're going to take a page out of jk rowling's book she said dumbledore was gay the whole time yes, yeah. they kind of did the same thing with you yes. and i was wondering how you received that like them adding this extra layer onto the character Right at the end.
2: Well, I, I love the way you characterized that. Just the kind of hint of kind of shade that you put on it yeah. was, was it exactly was how it? I felt about it. And that is how I felt about yeah. it. And I felt that way because you probably know I'm totally out and I and I don't have a problem with characters that I'm playing being gay or not being gay. But... I had no idea throughout the time that I was doing the show for 10 and a half years, however it was until right before when they let this bomb drop. I had no idea that I was playing him as if he had uh, relationships with women or whatever. My backstory was not that at all. So it felt a little cheap to me. Mm -hmm. It did. But I was also kind of torn because, you know, it's positive and there's nothing wrong with it. And so I felt it was kind of what's the word provocative or something Mm -hmm. but it did feel a little convenient or kind of lazy or you know kind of not particularly the best way that you want to come out as a character right it wasn't like alan coming out it wasn't like Mm -hmm. you know some great thing that was really impactful (laughs) and funny or human or whatever it was just kind of a minor point made It kind of reminds me of when
0: politicians were against gay marriage until the polls started changing and they were like, actually, this whole time, you guys, I've been for you. I just was not helping you in any way. Yes. Um, But I'm here now. Is that Good enough? Yeah. No? Yeah. Well, I'm not okay. sure
2: if it was quite as bad as that because yeah. I think that's really bad. I think this is more kind of a convenient and, oh, what can we do to kind of connect him to the story and let's just do that. And the fact that people were going to say this, that we're, what we're saying, is was probably completely apparent to them, but it was okay with them that, that we would. It was like right. worth it, mm-hmm. worth it. So because
0: culture isn't always accepting of gay people or the industry isn't always accepting of Asian-American actors, you've said in previous interviews that you always thought of those parts of your identity as hindrances to what you wanted to do with your life. And I think you even said that if there had been an operation to remove those parts of yourself— you might have considered it. So I was curious about the evolution from being in that place to where you are now, which is accepting who you are and not giving any Fs.
2: Right. <laughs> well, are we not allowed to say Fs? Let's just say it. F***s. Yes. Okay. We can believe this. <laughs> okay. I, just to clarify, it's not, you, you use the word always, you know, I that was a long time ago right, that right. I felt that way. And I was immersed in two things. One was I was fully enraptured with the idea of becoming an actor and just loving the experience I was having as a young student, learning the joy of acting and learning how I kind of meshed with it. You know, it really worked for me. It was something that I was really good at and that that gave me satisfaction and kids are lucky to be able to have an experience where they connect with something like that. And then at the, at the same time as that I was a consumer. I was watching television and I was going to movies and there were no Asian people in the movies and the gay people that were characterized in movies weren't particularly positive. So it was a kind of a double insult to me as far as how I processed that information. It made me not want to be those things. Mm -hmm. And it made me want to kind of think, well, uh, I was in kind of a denial about it. And this is a, a, a kind of denial that a lot of ethnic kids and specifically, I think, Asian American kids and some gay kids have where they avoid the issue of the truth of them mm-hmm. and when you avoid that it causes only problems for you and it takes you a long time to kind of untangle them as a young actor you enter the field and whether you are in touch with who you are or not the industry will tell you what what it thinks you are
0: mm-hmm. and when it
2: relegates you to something you go oh they think i'm this and i in order to do all these other things that i want to do i have to prove it Or I have to cave and just do this. And I think I went through a fair amount of conflict about these two issues in myself. And then I had two experiences. One was that I got my first Broadway show, which was M. Butterfly. Mm. And that was really the first time that I ever experienced anything uber positive about being of Asian descent. And that play was celebrated and the people in it were given lots of props for being attached to it, myself included. And I thought, wow, this is like a proud moment for me of being Asian American, which was really refreshing to me. Like uh, over time, right before that, I was constantly kind of sheepish about it like it wasn't a great thing to be to me at that time and so that kind of changed on a dime that I was all of a sudden going oh there's a power to it and there's beauty to it that felt really exciting to me and really was grateful it came at the right time for me to be able to kind of turn around my attitude about myself with regards to being Asian American I was really gung-ho with the idea of all of the Asian pride that I was feeling but at the time this was 1989, and I was kind of half out or kind of conveniently out, I'm not you know, it was out to myself and out to my close circle of friends, but not in a career way. And so I always would divert, you know, like in a situation like this, I wouldn't be talking about it. I'd steer the conversation away from it, mm. that kind of thing. And then it wasn't until I became a parent and my son was born, and to make a long story short, I wrote a book, and the book was coming out, and I was going on a book tour, and I realized on the eve of going on this book tour that I was coming out. And I didn't, it was kind of like caught me off guard, like, oh, wow, you're coming out, you know, like <laughs> it. tomorrow you're going on the Today Show and you're going to have to talk about your partner and where the baby came from and surrogacy and all of that stuff. And oh, wow, this is really, and it, in some, many ways, it was the opportunity I was looking for. I wanted something positive. And so I was grateful to have these two projects, really, a book and this Broadway show to kind of turn around my own attitude about myself. Like I was able to talk in a very relaxed way without controlling everything. And all of a sudden, I felt like it was myself. And I am grateful for that. It was a long kind of process, but I'm glad that it happened when it did.
0: Like you're saying, when you're in a conversation and you steer it a different way, you're just shutting down these parts of yourself. And most queer people know that experience. And then once you turn it on, you're like, oh, this was my power all along. Yes, You can steer it in a different way and your differences is your power.
2: Yeah, the thing that you think is the thing that's going to kill you, oh, I'll just die if I have to do that, is actually the thing that enlivens you and drives you and pushes you forward. It makes you feel great about it's really actually an amazingly great feeling to be yourself. What a concept, right? <laughs> and I think more people definitely know that now than they did before, although it's still a struggle for lots of people.
0: It is definitely still a struggle. What no longer is a struggle, according to some people, is now that Crazy Rich Asians is out, racism is canceled. You get all the roles you need. (laughs) When people say those kinds of things, are you just like, okay, tap you on the head? Well, I Um, think
2: it's nice that they think that. And I think feeling positive about something that sometimes feels very despairing is a really good thing. Like, to get to take a break from the despair for a second. And let's just, like, celebrate this thing for a minute. Talking about how much of a game-changer it might or might not be, because I was around when Joy Luck Club came out, Mm -hmm. and there was no social media. You know, people were less kind of rah-rah, kind of really passionate about it. But Asian-American people, to their credit, got really into this movie. And that was really heartwarming and empowering. Because I've always said in my... Career to Asian American audiences. You know, you've got to spend your money on Asian American content. I really want you to do that. You don't have to go see my movies. You (laughs) can just go see somebody's movies, somebody that's making movies or writing movies. Put your money where your mouth is. You know, it's not erasing any kind of anti Asian sentiment or anything that keeps Asian people down in the media, but it has shifted the needle in a noticeable way when you look at the awards shows and you realize that there are more. I was invited to be a member of the Motion Picture Academy right before Crazy Rich Asians came out. And it's because there's a trend of wanting to be inclusive and diverse, Mm -hmm. particularly in these bodies, which purport to be representing everyone.
1: When we talk about taking a stand for what's right at a personal cost, you did something in 1990 when (laughs) Miss Saigon came to Broadway. If that's something you're comfortable talking about, I think that this is something that a lot of people listening won't know What happened? Right,
2: right, right. Well, first, what happened was the original West End production of um, Miss Saigon in London uh, was playing to rave reviews, and it was a tremendously successful show. Uh, The leading actor of that show, playing a Vietnamese pimp, was a beloved. British Caucasian actor named Jonathan Price who was in what we call yellowface and we use the term very loosely but it it means using makeup and playing outside of your race through makeup and and prosthetic eyelids and stuff like that. And when my community of actors heard about this, we kind of kind of wrote the thing off as a thing that would happen in England. We thought, well, this is like a a thing that happens there and they have this tradition of Caucasian actors playing across race they do it all the time and so it won't really happen here is what we kind of naively thought and the show was so successful as often happens they wanted to bring the original cast Mm -hmm. to um, New York and the one thing that they had to do in order for that to happen was to get permission from the actors union actors equity to grant them visas and so I wrote a letter to the union explaining what I just told you. And this is what we call appropriation now, right? Which didn't have a name then. We didn't call it appropriation. It was just, you know, we were struggling with kind of finding the right words to describe this odd phenomenon that we felt really relegated us and kept us back over years of cinema and all kinds of, you know, um, uh, Caucasian actors playing outside every race. When the reverse of us being able to play Caucasian actors was simply not true at all. And so that playing field being uneven and us feeling that this was an opportunity for some actor, um, we just created a dialogue that had not existed at all before. And very dramatically, there was a gigantic union meeting with tons of Asian American actors who showed up for it, and the Equity Council voted to deny Jonathan Price his visa. And that created this huge backlash in the city where the mayor got involved and the producer of the show said he would not bring the show. And all of a sudden, all these people were weighing in about something that they really didn't know anything about, you know, about appropriation and about the history of blackface and yellowface and all of those kinds of things. And then Equity re- reversed its decision. And Jonathan came, and there and was a kind of a big discussion that occurred. He eschewed the use of makeup and played the role in the States without makeup. Hmm. And um, that was somewhat acceptable or somewhat more acceptable than him kind of yellowing up, as we call it. Mm -hmm. But the most important thing was that the conversation was activated in a way that it hadn't been before. And we felt a shift in attitudes towards Asian-American performers from that point on in the theater. And we saw more opportunities for access to parts from that point on. Even just the vocabulary that we were introducing was completely unknown before that. And and so even that was very helpful. And then terms like appropriation and stuff like that came about. And now we use them freely. Mm. And now even people that shouldn't be using them apply appropriation to their community. <laughs> when they, But they know what it means, at mm. least. Know the word, <laughs> yeah. I guess.
1: And it has, like the conversations that are going on around appropriation, representation, uh-huh. who gets to play what role, who yeah. should play what role. Yeah. And it's interesting because in the course of us reading interviews with you, when you talk about what parts you want to take and what you don't, the the amount of thought it sounds like that went into you accepting the role on Mr. Robot, which is your role is of a trans woman.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, the interviews we've read, you know, you really wrestle with, with that concept.
2: Yeah, I, di- I really did. And I and I, and I did not take it lightly at all. And I, it wasn't until I really talked with Sam Esmail, who created the part and created the show and directs the show, that I understand that it was a very unique part. And um, not to defend it, you know, she really is a trans woman, but she really interfaces as a man for a good part of the show. And it's really unclear... And, and and it's actually none of our business. What's actually her identity? She never says in words what it is she is. We just see what she is. But we also see that she has a very male identity as well. And it's very mysterious. And to be super honest, it's really not the way a character would really be in real life. I mean, it's a very theatrical character who has two very distinct faces. Mm-hmm. However, having said all that, Trans actors have way less opportunities than even Asian-American actors have. And I like to complain about Asian-American actors having no representation. And so for me to take one posture about Asian-American lack of representation and then for me to take a job from a trans actor at a time when it's becoming clearer and clearer how great trans actors can be. I mean, we're just seeing them everywhere now. Talk about moving the needle. It's really, really encouraging. So at this particularly crucial time for me to take that opportunity felt really wrong. I thought about it a lot. And I talked about where Sam's creative inspiration was coming from and all of that. And I decided to do it. And really, again, it's an opportunity for me to just talk about it. And for those interviews, for me to just say, okay, so here's the thing. taking a job away from a transactor is a real thing. And I did it with mixed feelings, and you can judge me for that. But let's talk about the fact that it is an opportunity to get a consciousness about the reality of representation in general in our industry, which tends to be very shallow and tends to be very narrow-minded. And I also think that it's a part of the responsibility of being a public person that you can't take these things lightly. And if you are in a situation where there's something to call out, you meet it head on and you talk about Mm -hmm. it, you know.
0: And you said that the industry is very narrow-minded, even a place like RuPaul's Drag Race, which is supposed to be the place where you can play with gender and anyone is welcome. Even that show has had this struggle around RuPaul saying, well, this might not be the platform for trans women. Uh And then there being a big backlash. And now there are trans women there. So it is just like we were talking about from 1990 to here. We're like navigating where we're going from here and figuring out all of these things together. Yeah. I
2: mean, if someone like RuPaul is learning, not, not learning, but like shifting, you know, RuPaul, who is a tastemaker and a community Mm. leader and a beacon of everything positive, really, that tells you what kind of conversations that need to happen. Mm -hmm. And I found that whole discussion within the drag community super interesting and vital and important. And I don't know if anybody has ever watched the Michelle Passage interview afterwards, you know, the follow-up, like, how did you feel? It has none of the kind of editing that the show has where they manipulate you to think, one way or the other about a person. It's totally candid. So I was really into that particular discussion about Gia and what it meant for a, a trans woman to feel the tension of what drag actually was for her. Because it was no longer the outlet that she right. needed to be a woman because she then actually was a woman. Right. And that was amazing. And she said that she had reservations
0: of going back on the show for All Stars because people would perceive her as a cis man being in drag. And she's like, I am a woman who does drag, the art of drag. Yes. So we got that from, like you said, the after show, What You Pack In With Michelle Massage. But on the show, she was edited to be a villain. and, And you got the information that she was trans but it was in the background and not yeah. very very important to her identity yeah they
2: made her look a little crazy yeah they made her look a little kind of intense and crazy and the, the human being part of it that comes out in those interviews is so wonderful to me i'm so glad they do those it's really important
0: speaking of mr robot mm-hmm. which we were talking about before there's a cult following for that show and there's also a cult following for you the person <laughs> You don't know this. Well,
1: the look on your face suggests that you don't know this, but when we say your name around the building, it would suggest a cult following.
0: A, a cult following. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. Multiple people asked to just be in the vicinity to just wave at you, or I don't know what they intended to that do. Is it's true. awfully
2: quiet here, you know, right now. So I'm not. I'm, I'm not sure if this is, you know, really the truth of this. But okay. Well, we respected
0: yes. your
1: privacy. Yes, you thank know, you. we pushed them away. That's why we're
0: recording at seven
2: p.m. Yeah. Okay. Everyone's gone home. Yes.
0: Even a friend of mine texted me this morning an illustrated Valentine's Day card. Yes. Of your character from SVU. Yes, right. And it says, Happy Valentine's Day to the person with all the answers.
2: Oh wow.
0: And you look beautiful on it. So
2: <laughs> it's a photograph or a drawing? Yeah, I can show you. Okay, great. Oh <laughs> the sweater. And oh if you God. swipe once. I will. There's another once. one. This is another one that says, I huang to be with you, um, <laughs> which was a part of a series of Valentine's Day cards that they made with all the different characters. And then they were shut down because of copyright infringement or Dang. something like that. So if anybody has those, they're like super collector's items.
0: Well, I have a digital version. So yes, right. <laughs> Boom. you can print it out.
2: Same thing,
1: basically.
0: Yeah. I think you just resonate with people, especially on SVU. You have this calming presence. I've heard right. that from multiple people. And just all of your work is stellar. And we're just so thankful that you came here. Thanks. We are running out of time, so we're going to do a lightning round.
2: Oh, boy. Okay. There's
0: only four I'm questions. I'm my eyes. <laughs> but my we eye. just need to stuff these in okay. and then let you on your merry That's
2: way. That's what she said. Okay.
1: Oh, yeah. Question number one. Mm-hmm. Your Twitter feed would indicate that you are a big fan of Alcofina.
2: I am a big fan of Aquafina. I'm playing her dad in the show um, on Comedy Central this summer. I did the pilot. I think she's a very unique, incredible breath of fresh air and a free spirit, and also combines weird different mediums, you know, like rapping and stuff. And I think she reminds me of when I worked with Margaret Cho on Margaret Cho's show, because what Margaret and Aquafina both need is to have something written around them so that they can be themselves. So I'm very protective of Aquafina and of what will become of her through this show because I really want it to channel her unique energy. And so being really encouraged, having seen a cut of the pilot, I'm really excited about that project.
0: And now I'm excited too. Mm. Okay, question number two. Marlon Brando has taught you in the past to sharpen a knife. Mm -hmm. You also were choked by Sean Connery in the back of a car. Yes. So I was wondering if there are other moments from your career that just spring into your mind as like, whoa, I made it and I live a very special, interesting life.
2: Well, uh, not to like pat myself on the back because it's not meant to be that at all, but I, I feel that all the time. For example, I did this movie, Bird Box. And it was a job at the time that I did it. It was like, oh, I'm doing this movie with Sandra Bullock and blah, 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 blah. And I have this kind of like nice little part, but it's not that big a deal. And I'm going to L.A. to shoot the movie. And as luck would have it, it became this big thing. And in my interaction with someone like Sandra Bullock becomes this kind of like thing that still surprises me i'm still like wow this person even knowing me or liking me or you know because sandra bullock will play a role in the casting of a movie you know you never know and i feel this all the time those two examples of sean connery and marlon brando absolutely i i (laughs) those were like weird things that happened but there've been tons of things like that you know i spent three months in argentina with brad pitt you know Ooh. in separate rooms not for a movie but, yeah. or anything
1: just just chilling yeah, just
2: just <laughs> we're just getting away you know you have um, to yeah and and so that you know things like that they happen all the time and it's wonderful and i'm very aware that i'm very lucky
1: next question you're also a prolific voice actor you <laughs> provided the voice of captain shang in mulan yes are you excited for a mulan remake and how do you feel about disney remake culture <laughs>
2: It exemplifies a human need that is obviously there. Okay, so as human beings, we're only judging ourselves by judging something like Disney remake culture because there's a demand for it. And so who are we to say that we should or should not be remaking or not? Shot for shot of Lion King, I'm not so keen about artistically. It's not so interesting to me. Mulan is supposed to be live action, right? I think so. But apparently it's very different. I I, I mean, I don't think there's even Shang in it. Rude. Yeah. (laughs) Rude.
0: Where's your check? That's what I want to know. Yes,
2: well, (laughs) Yeah. If there's a check, I will find it. Yes. Yes, Trust me. Yes. Our final question. Uh Uh-huh.
0: When you were a kid, a lot of gay kids have this experience where they see, whether it's a cartoon or just a celebrity or whatever, where you're like, ooh, I feel special. I'm probably gay. Did you have that growing up? Just like someone you later maybe realized, oh, that was a gay attraction, but in the moment you were like feeling a little tingle.
2: Well, Batman and Robin. Good and choice. and I was four. Like I oh. was really young and it was a television show and I remember thinking, hmm, this is really different feeling. Like I remember <laughs> I should I don't know. No, come on, you have to. I, I don't know why I remember this, because I just remember that I was lying on my tummy, you know, like like this, with my hands and my elbows up like this, watching the T V, right? And kind of feeling warm. <laughs> and <laughs> And, and kind of understanding that re- and it wasn't just either of them uh, physically or anything like that. It was their dynamic mm-hmm. relationship. It was a male duo relationship that you didn't really see that much of, I guess, at the time. And so the bond of that mm-hmm. has always stayed with me. Like, I'm always attracted to male relationships that have a close bond like that. In the real life version, they were like, it was his ward or whatever that um, was. Yeah, we know so what that is. Like, How does that look? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there was a, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's. I'm sure I'm not the only person who felt this way. And then there was tights. There was spandex. we well, not spandex, but, you know, it was tight. Stretchy material. Very tight. <laughs> yeah. And
0: Robin was always like strung up with like rope. And... Yes, yeah, so there oh, yeah. was a whole
2: kind of save me thing. Right. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I don't know. Yeah.
0: Well, now we know all of your inner secrets. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be. On next week's episode, <laughs> can you
1: come back and tell us all of your secrets. Yes, of course. Yes.
0: <laughs> Thanks so much for taking the time. Of course, for thank yes, you. You guys are great. Thanks.
2: Bye. Bye.
0: This episode was edited by me, Emmanuel Hapsis, with help from Ashley Ann Craig Thanks to Susie Ratcho, David Marcus, and Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs.
1: Until our next episode drops, you can find us on social media. I'm at Teacup in the Bay.
0: I'm at Excuse My Beauty. And
1: Jameter is at Jameter Says.
0: And she's currently at her other job, which is why she's (laughs) not here. (laughs) Bye. Bye.